Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Well, warships are anchored off the Cornish coast. We've got US military planes circling the skies above St Ives and about 6,000 police officers have descended on the southwest corner of England as well. Yes, the G7, the first global summit in the COVID era, is rolling into Cornwall. We'll take a look at what the UK wants to achieve, what the world wants to achieve, and whether G7 summits are the right way to go about it. For Boris Johnson, this gathering is a chance to show the world what global Britain is all about. But there are questions about whether his government is setting the best example at home. We're going to take a closer look at a decidedly mixed record of heeding the rules on ethics. And then we'll end by looking ahead to Monday, when the Prime Minister will announce whether the great unlocking date of June the 21st will be met, or whether the latest COVID data means the date will have to shift. I'm joined for all this in the virtual studio today by a brilliant lineup. We've got IFG Deputy Director Hannah White back with us. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Bronwyn. Thanks for joining us. And it's good to be joined again by Alex Thomas, formerly of the Cabinet Office, now running our Civil Service Work Programme. Hi, Alex. Hi, Bronwyn. And we're all delighted that Tom Newton-Dunn, chief political commentator at Times Radio and political columnist at the Evening Standard, can be with us today. You've come fresh from the lobby, haven't you, Tom? Hello, Bronwyn. Fresh from Matt Hancock's evidence session. How exciting does that get? It gets pretty exciting, I think. He's giving the G7 a run for its money, I think, so far. Anyway. Pleasure to be here. Good to have you. All right, let's start with a virtual trip to Cornwall and this gathering of the leaders of the G7 nations in Carbis Bay. We've got three days of official meetings, behind the scenes, bilaterals in the jargon, photo opportunities, press briefings, lots more beside. Last time this meeting happened, which was two years ago, Donald Trump got the hump and walked out early, calling the whole meeting outdated and refusing to sign a communique, which then didn't happen. Tom, things can only get better, can't they? Yeah, I think so. In fact, uh, that was at the Toronto G7. I, I remember distinctly, we all got to go a little bit earlier. And just as we were boarding what was then an RAF Hercules to fly us from a very remote part of Quebec over to uh, the airport again, we were all told or our phones started exploding with Trump's tweet as Air Force One was taxiing to take off and leave Quebec to say that, in fact, he decided the thing was a waste of time. He was going to rip up the communique that he had actually signed at the G7 at all uh, over that extraordinary breakfast, got him into a corner room and get him to agree communicate. He'd ripped it up and that was literally that. So, And I think the fact that this G7 is even happening the fact that you're going to get the world's seven leaders plus four more, be it one virtually to make up the D11 come Sunday in a room together and, uh, and it would appear ready to agree something is in itself an achievement in that the world is back. America may be back under new leadership, but also the world and what was and hopefully maybe in the future a semblance of a world order is also returning. As a journalist, what do you look for at one of these gatherings? What counts as news? Well, I mean, pretty much anything, actually. G7s are quite interesting. This is not just a G7, it's a G7 plus a D11, plus, of course, the first meeting of a brand-new US president with a reasonably new British prime minister. So it's kind of a news fest, really. Everything rolled into one, uh, a news Christmas day. So there's a lot. Obviously, the first, the, the Biden Johnson summit, uh, how those two get on. They've been fairly uncomplimentary about each other in the past when they did different jobs. So let's see how that one rolls out. That would be uh, in itself fascinating. Can they re-establish what would have been the special relationship? But Boris Johnson now banned that word because he says it's too needy. Interesting. Uh, the president, uh, busy tweeting the run-up to that, has called it the special relationship. So it would appear he hasn't got the memo on that. So there's that. 
Then, of course, then uh, there is the, the G7 agenda per se, and that's it's really wide and broad. And there's a lot of stories coming out of that from everything from COVID resilience, building back better, as both the president and the prime minister have sloganized before, to climate change and, of course, foreign policy. Then there's the D11 dynamic of standing up against China, having the world's democracies presenting a front of a world order, if, if you like. And I suppose there's the, there's the non-agenda stuff, uh, obviously at the moment now going to be characterised by the Northern Ireland Protocol row and the what will undoubtedly be some fairly tense conversations in the sidelines over that between the European members, uh, not just the three member states, uh, France, Germany, Italy, but of course, Ursula uh, von der Leyen and Charles Michel from the, the European Union, all there. Sticking on this, I, I'm struck by... What an optimistic, if you like, upbeat assessment of the G7 you've just given us, um, not just about a headline communique or whether they do something on vaccines um, or get this very tricky tax deal over the line, but all kinds of things. I was writing this week about what I call the Tinkerbell effect. That is, you know, the whole group of them saying, uh, we believe, we believe it's worthwhile. Is that what the G7 relies on, in your view, for its influence? That, it, you know, if enough people say that we believe this is worth it, then it's worth it. I think that's a fairly good point. G7s and even G20s actually in the past can either be extremely meaningful, and you think back to the London G20 uh, hosted by Gordon Brown just after the financial crash in, in 2008. That that was re-establishing a world banking order and it was incredibly useful. Others that, that we've been and gone from have been fairly less useful. The communiques are bland when they can't agree very much. And you do slightly wonder what on earth was the point in all that uh, carbon dioxide being burnt up in, in air jet fuel as we all travel around the world to get to them all and cover them all. The fact that it's happening and, and uh, as I say, uh, there is a belief uh, in a world order again. Or I, I wouldn't even actually go that far. I characterise that, I think, by saying there is an attempt to re-establish a world order after really four or five years of uh, fairly heavy disfraction. Not just Donald Trump, it has to be said. A lot of the G7 have, have gone their own way. Britain has gone its own way with Brexit. That is certainly uh, not a, a departure, I think, is the, probably the politest way to put it, from a previous uh, world order of rules that we might have come to understand. France, Germany, not showing anyway the same sense of uh, um, understanding that America wants them to on how to confront China uh, or even Russia. Big dispute over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, for example, on the latter. So uh, there is certainly, I'd say, an attempt to get into the room uh, and believe again. Let's see what we really come to and how meaningful the experience really is in terms of actual policy rather than just presenting an image. It's really interesting the way you put it, because you mentioned some of the external threats, which can help bring a sense of unity. You mentioned Russia and China, uh, and of course there's coronavirus confronting every every country. But it's the question, you know, as you put it very well, about whether um, countries actually respond to the, that external pressure and reach some kind of agreement. Alex, you've seen government very close up. What do you think the Prime Minister wants out of this? I think he wants to be at the centre of global attention and to be seen to be shaping the agenda, move on. Uh, and we'll see if this is possible, but from some of the dramas of Brexit and his domestic political criticism. And I think he wants to capitalise on what he sees as uh, uh, domestic 
successes around the vaccine rollout and then agreeing a global coordinated uh, vaccine sharing program. Uh, also uppermost in his mind will be the fact that uh, the UK is hosting the Conference of Parties, the COP Summit on Climate Change later this year. So he'll be cle- keen to lodge that um, on the agenda. I-, I also suspect he'll be keen for some, you know, some good pictures to come out of uh, the uh, event. Britain is back, put flesh on the phrase that he's used over the last couple of years about global Britain and to put the country, as I say, sort of at the, at the centre of a series of global uh, alliances. And that's one of the reasons, I mean, Tom touched on it, but why the Brexit subplot uh, and uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol is interesting. Um, but I think, uh, you know, famous last words, but if you're hosting a summit and nothing terrible goes wrong, you probably get, get something out of it. And what counts as a good picture, incidentally? Is the new slimline Prime Minister going to take an early morning dip? Or are you, are you talking, thinking of more staged things of handshakes and so on? I was thinking, you know, the conversation with Joe Biden being uh, next to the world um, leaders, uh, a visual manifestation of cooperation and, and status. I mean, we, we remember from these things after Obama was elected, everybody raced up to want to stand next to um, uh, President uh, Obama. There'll be something, perhaps not quite as much star quality, but something the same with Joe Biden, a prime minister that that knows how to create a create a sense of occasion. I think will enjoy one of the one of the biggest stages in the world. Although probably not handshakes in the current uh, yes. situation. <laughs> Maybe not handshakes, but Hannah, how much difference do you think it made? We've had a year and a bit of Zoom, and leaders haven't had a chance to get together at all. How much difference do you think it actually makes? I think it will make a big difference. I think this is a you know it, it, it's it's Biden's first trip overseas. It's their first opportunity you know to all get together, and I think that 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 will probably I mean Tom can tell us, but I think that that will accelerate the amount of attention that is paid to this internationally. And you know and and the politicians will just like it because they like to get together and they like to to to, to meet each other. So I think that the the drought that we've had in terms of these big occasions, these set piece occasions, will lend extra. Um, kudos to this one. And how much difference do you think it makes if they actually get a chance to meet in person? So I think, I mean, this is a really interesting point, because it's the thing that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of of our parliament and our parliament only being able to meet virtually. And and one of the big things that that politicians say is that, you know, so much of politics happens uh, in the the conversations at the side of the room, uh, you know, as you're you're walking into dinner, as you're you're going through the, the division lobby and so on, and all that stuff that just isn't possible you know politics is a contact sport and although with these sort of very big set piece uh, conferences a lot has been done in advance and a lot of you know uh, work will have been done behind the scenes by officials and, uh, and so on actually getting the, the the key figures in the room uh, at, at the final moment I think does um, is really important and it will be different that they are actually literally in the room together than if they were trying to do this over zoom and we've seen over the last year just how difficult it has been to agree anything other than sort of lowest common denominator. I mean, leaders have coordinated over Zoom when they've had to and when there's been a you know, really pressing need. But I think some of the opportunities around uh, global coordination of the um, uh, around the, the pandemic response uh, have been lacking precisely because of that lack of personal touch and uh, ability to gather. That's a really interesting point. So, Tom, can you take us into some of the detail? I mean, we've had, you know, flirtations in the, in the press with a deal on vaccines, a deal on global minimum corporation tax, and now the rows are coming in. Northern Ireland, Biden's very concerned about that um, and, and other things, which I'll come on to. You know, what, what counts as success and what should we expect? Maybe start with the vaccines and the tax. 
Yeah, well, there's a lot actually coming. As I say, it's going to be a fairly news-packed summit, both in terms of the the actual agenda and off-agenda, which often makes um, the colour. Just in terms of the personal uh, relationships, uh, probably the most interesting thing, I can't quite remember which one it was now. It was a NATO summit, actually, when Macron and Trump first met. And you remember that Macron walking down, for some reason he was walking down a very long colonnade, to meet all the other NATO leaders. And just at the last minute, as Donald Trump put his hand out, he swerved to shake Angela Merkel's hand or kiss Angela Merkel instead as a purposeful snub. So it's the colour like that we also look for and the imagery, uh, how they get on, what they say together. There's a beach party on Saturday night uh, in Cornwall, Carbis Bay, where they're toasting marshmallows over a fire and they're going to be entertained by sea shanty singers, if you like. So There you go. That's Alex's perfect picture. Yes. <laughs> so, the, I mean, all, all of this, the imagery is is lovely. HMS Prince of Wales, the brand new FKK, has just turned up around the back of Carbis Bay. So that will be in the background. So another good image there for Boris's global power projection. But getting back to the, the actual policy achievements, certainly the, the vaccine deal will be one, donating uh, a billion doses of vaccine around the world by the end of next year. Now, Prime Minister has an announcement on Friday morning about exactly how many doses the UK is going to be donating. We know President Biden is donating uh, half of that entire billion share, uh, half a billion. But it's when that happens, I think we'll all be looking quite carefully to see because doses are needed immediately in places like Africa and Nepal, India, uh, rather than just long-term promises of some time in the future and cash. So the, the, the health picture is important. Is this is, is just on the on the vaccine? Is it an easy one for them in the sense that by now all these countries are fairly through? The, you know, they're a long way through their vaccination programs. They have a sense of how many spare doses that they've got. They all bought a lot in the beginning. They have a sense of what they can give to the world. They know the world needs it. That's that's a fairly easy one that makes them look good. Uh, I think yes and no. I think it's easy for countries like the US who have done very well and the UK, and we've got pretty far down our, our vaccination rollout, but you know, w- we can't quite predict what the Prime Minister is going to say tomorrow. But if, for example, he was to say that the UK is going to start donating doses now, immediately in the next few weeks, then, you know, as we all know, not every UK adult has had a second dose yet. That may cause some consultation. There may be some. Could be some Tory MPs, for example, standing up, maybe even the Labour Party saying, why are we doing this? before we protect our own population first. Uh, others around the world have said this is exactly the right thing to do. Carl Bild, I interviewed the other day, the WHO's special envoy on vaccines said, we need doses right now and your healthy adults can wait because they're not at risk where others around the world are. So it could cause some controversy. And I think those countries who are less far down the the, the, the vaccination scale, you know, perhaps the Italians, perhaps the French, that I think is going to be a little harder for them to run to their populations and explain uh, their generosity, maybe. And what about the tax deal? There was a lot of attention last weekend, which feels like a long, long time ago, when the G7 finance ministers got together and they were very excited that the US seemed to be signing on for a global minimum corporation tax. And then all kinds of problems inevitably have emerged where some countries, including Ireland, aren't quite happy, UK wanting an exemption for financial services. Would you expect this to be in the final communique? Yeah, it will be in the Kingdom because it's not a decision until the G7 leaders themselves take it, actually, despite the fact it was already fully reported. And, and we don't expect them to reverse it, of course, but technically the G7 leaders do have to uh, sign this off. So it will be in the Kingdom 
I think the way you look at that one is really half glass full or half glass empty because it is historic that there should be uh, at least the beginnings of a global deal, a G7 deal on taxation, corporation tax limits, uh, even though it's as low as 15% as the Biden administration might argue because they wanted it 21%. Uh, But there are exemptions uh, also, so you don't have to pay uh, this global minimum on your profits unless uh, you make over 10% profit. There's that 10% leeway. And quite a lot of companies, it's been argued this week, Amazon, for example, which is a big tech firm that this whole system was set up in a way to catch globally, may be able to exert themselves from it because they can argue that they don't make uh, uh, more than 10% in, in profit. But I think the fact that it has been established that there needs to be some sort of globalized uh, a, a minimum rate uh, is a good thing. And it's something that G7 leaders can go back to in the future. Who knows? The next G7 next year, they can improve it. Let's move to one of the controversies, though. I mean, Hannah, what about the Northern Ireland controversy? And we've had the the um, news uh, you know, coming to the end of this week that President Biden has taken on Boris Johnson very directly, saying, look, you've got to do something about this. Yeah, well, it certainly seems that, um, you know, Biden is the president, you know, after the election last year, that, that Boris didn't want to be facing over this issue, and he is the one who's going to take the hard line. So, Because um, he, is, he is Irish by descendancy and cares enormously about the Good Friday Agreement and Irish peace in general. Exactly so. And it's unfortunate, I think, for for Boris Johnson that it is right now, just as the uh, issues over the protocol really seem to be coming to a head, that the the timing is such that the G7 is happening at the same time. So I think that is going to be an issue which is going to put pressure on him. And I I would be, you know, it seems very clear from, from the briefing that it is something that Biden is going to be raising. Do you think the UK is isolated on this? Well, I mean, you know, we've heard senior conservative backbenchers saying, oh, well, you know, Biden ought to be to backing um, the UK against the EU on this. But I just think that that is, is pretty unrealistic in terms of the of the politics of it. You know, Biden's over here, he's, he's coming to the UK, but then he's going on uh, to, to Brussels and he's going on into Europe. And, you know, the, the relationship with, with the EU is going to be really crucial. And the, the change of geography over here, not the physical geography, but the political geography of, of, of after Brexit means that, you know, it's definitely going to be a concern for the new US president to be cementing those relationships with the EU as well. So I think, you know, whether we like the phrase special relationship or not, I think, you know, the relationship is undoubtedly changing. Um, and it's going to be really up to Boris Johnson to, to try to negotiate what he wants that to be. But I think it is unrealistic to think that Biden is going to, to, to back the UK in this in this row. Um, so, yes, um, you may be right that I think that, you know, there is a risk that um, the UK ends up looking more isolated at the end of this. Alex, you worked on some of the Brexit stuff when you, you were in government. Where do you think this is going? There's a lot of stuff in the in the, the UK press about, you know, how rigid the EU is being, which indeed in many respects it is. But Britain seems to be losing the international debate on this. 
Yes, and I think, I mean, to what Hannah and you were just saying, the UK is isolated on on it. I think in the very short term, there's a sort of behind the scenes, in front of the curtain uh, aspect to this, which is that I don't think any or many of the leaders at the G7 will want this to dominate. So I think it'll be a case of smoothing things over in public while applying a bit of pressure in private from the US probably to both the EU and UK sides. I mean, longer term, it is very hard to see a way through on this. The European Union is going to stick to its, to what Boris Johnson would no doubt call a legalistic approach. Well, that's what the EU is. That's what the, the EU does. It's it's not going to concede things that it considers to be fundamental to the free market. At the same time, it's going to be very wary of being boxed into a corner by the British government, uh, where the UK government starts saying, well, you're imperiling peace in Northern Ireland, you're creating the conditions for violence and threatening the Good Friday agreement. So it's probably in everybody's interest for this to roll on a little bit longer if the UK start you know, continues to push the boundaries on the implementation of the protocol, the EU will uh, grumble ever more loudly, but has a really difficult decision about when they push the button and and start uh, instigating sanctions or uh, consequences. I think that will happen at some point, but the EU will want it to happen in a fairly controlled way. So they don't they don't get boxed in, as I say. Tom, where do you reckon this is going? Well, it does rather like Boris Johnson's government has a rather substantial judgment call to make, which is do they or do they not extend the grace period for chilled meats on June the 30th when it expires and it becomes illegal from that moment onwards to export chilled meats or processed meat sausages and chicken nuggets and the like uh, into Northern and from, from GB. That, that I think is going to be the crunch point. And effectively what I think happened in London on Wednesday, Mara Sefkic came in and said, we understand you're thinking about doing this. If you do do this, be under no doubt whatsoever that we will retaliate with elements like suspending whole chunks of the trade and cooperation agreement, the Brexit deal, uh, will not just take punitive action in the courts, but will take punitive action with tariffs as well. I mean, it really will be the, the, the most extraordinary reaction, a, a trade war and effectively the breakdown itself of the Brexit deal, which took an awful long time to negotiate. And if I was Boris Johnson and, and Lord Frost and I had uh, Joe Biden breathing down my necks, albeit very much in private, I don't think in public, I completely agree that they was going to want to blow up this summit with a row of an oil island quite now. I think very, very carefully what I really wanted to do this. It might well be popular. You might get some good headlines on sausages for a while. But the repercussions are, are really quite serious. And also, where's the exit game from all this? You know, How do you exit yourselves from what is effectively total isolation on trade uh, diplomatically really from from the rest of the world so i think they'll be thinking extremely carefully about what they really do want to press what is in effect the nuclear button i'm trying not to giggle at the phrase grace period on chilled meats how did we get there but um and the prime minister is uh, devoting all kinds of rhetoric to it he's just called lord frost his negotiator the greatest frost since the great frost of 1709 but underneath all that, as you said, there's a lot of quiet calculation, or you hope there is. Do you see the UK in practice bending at this point? I mean, there were some carrots in there from the US, weren't there, that saying, look, in, if you do, um, if you sort this out, uh, and for example, if you harmonise food and agricultural standards with, with the EU, uh, we're not going to um, hold that against you in a, in a trade deal with the US. We'll find some way to make that work. 
I mean, I, I, I feel it quite unlikely that the UK will just press ahead and, and extend the grace period unilaterally now that they know that this is the potential ramifications uh, and must be feeling pretty isolated as well after the end of, of this summit, certainly. So I think you're probably right. that There is a, probably some sort of landing strip territory there where uh, you don't call it alignment, uh, and it may not be alignment, but rather like the Brexit deal itself, there is a system devised by both sides where the UK agrees a common set of standards on agri-food with the EU, although, uh, of course, it won't be saying it's the EU standards, it'll be saying it's Britain's standards, because they still remain the same. It has to be uh, remembered, which is a slightly sort of strange aspect of all this. We're still arguing about nothing, actually, in terms of real uh, practicals on the ground of what sausages look like and taste like. Uh, uh, but you will then be able to derogate away from a little bit like the Brexit deal uh, it, itself. If we choose to move away on level playing field, then tariffs can get reimposed. So some sort of movable feast, which both sides really wanted to avoid because it's messy and you've got to go back to it when you want to change your things. But some sort of movable scale, which is basically a fudge, but it does at least allow uh, or avoid some sort of global thermo tariff nuclear war anyway. And just a very quick point there, Bronwyn. I mean, the, the Biden team is absolutely briefing checks there. They cannot cash uh, in terms of saying that the US won't be seeking uh, uh, departure from EU standards uh, as part of any trade deal. I mean, think about the Senate. Think about the ratification of any uh, any deal in the in the US. That is uh, that is a, a very sort of diversionary tactic, I think. The other thing to Tom's point is uh, Marcus Sefcovic, the negotiator of the EU, did float an intriguing compromise, which is that if the UK harmonised on agricultural standards, the UK could leave at any point, in a sense, so we could sort of temporarily harmonise to avoid exploding the uh, the discussions now, but then depart uh, of our own accord at some future point, presumably with consequences that would flow. Whether that would stick or not, I'm not sure, but but there's a bit of wiggle room there. Perhaps. Good to know. It's not going to answer the EU's point about breach of trust and, and, and that chorus that's running very loud at the moment. Hannah, just finally on this, uh, you spent a lot of time looking at Parliament and there was a big row this week in Parliament over the government's decision to cut spending on aid. How does that play into all this? Well, it's certainly a bit awkward again for, for Boris Johnson, I think. I mean, this was the uh, the reason this came up was the government was was putting through its bill that it wants um, to, to establish a new advanced research and invention agency. And, and some, some senior Conservatives tried to use it as an opportunity to have a vote on the government decision, which Parliament hasn't otherwise had a chance to vote on. Uh, to to cut uh, overseas aid from 0.7 to 0.5 percent, and and it and the government got away with it because the actually the procedure that the the rebels tried to use um, didn't work, um, but it did really highlight this you know this fact that this manifesto pledge that the Conservatives have made is has been broken as a consequence of of the pandemic. Ministers say you know, it's it's temporary. They say it's a popular decision in the country and it's necessary given the, the, the situation with coronavirus. But I think for Boris Johnson going into the into the G seven, you know, one of the things some of the objectives I think the UK had for the summit were around girls' education and things like that. And there is a bit of a, a risk that it looks to the other world leaders, you know, just a bit hypocritical that the UK is the only country that is making cuts to its aid budget in this context, um, and yet it's advocating for, for some of these development objectives. Awkward timing as all these issues surface at once. Well, let's swap the beaches of Cornwall for Westminster, which we were just talking about, and turn to this question of rules and ethics. From peerages to appointments, financial declarations, bullying, 
all of this, a pattern seems to be building of a prime minister who is not, how can we put it, wildly interested in rules or those bodies whose job it is to advise him on how best to maintain ethical standards. Hannah, you wrote a great piece for us this week on what you think is a growing problem. Can you set out what that problem is? Yes. So, I mean, as you say, Bronwyn, we have these ethical standards bodies in in the UK and and largely speaking, they're they're all advisory. So their job is to to tell the government how best to go about maintaining ethical standards. And obviously the objective behind it is to ensure that decisions that are made in government are objective and are transparent and are fair and are made for the good of the country and not for the good of, you know, an individual or, or, or a smaller group of people. And crucially, I think the reason we have these rules is to give the public confidence that that, that is the case in government, that the government is, is doing the best for the country that it can. Um, and I, what I was pointing out in, in, in my piece is that actually Boris Johnson is developing a real track record of ignoring the advice that he gets from these bodies. Uh, you mentioned a few of the different examples of that. And, you know, I think, you know, there's there's therefore a question about, you know, what's the point of having them, these, uh, if, uh, certainly as advisory bodies, if, he's, if the advice is always rejected, um, and potentially we should think about um, um, making some of their uh, advice actually in the form of rules um, and, and sanctions and so on and hardening up the system because what um, the, the current government's sort of record seems to be demonstrating is that actually there isn't much point to having them if it's, if it's just about advice. So what, was it mean, what would it mean to have rules that were binding? So, I mean, I think one of the key sort of problems that people have pointed up in the in the past few months is that at the end of the day the prime minister is marking his own homework on a lot of this stuff so he is the arbiter on the ministerial code he gets to determine whether it's been it's been breached or not and there are lots of other other bodies where nothing actually happens if you break a rule so i mean I, what i'm talking about is things like giving bodies like the minister's independent advisor on ministerial interests, giving him the power to initiate his own inquiries. So if something happens, which appears to be questionable that the minister's done, he can look into that himself without waiting for the prime minister to ask him to do that. That's the change that actually the Committee on Standards in Public Life, another ethics body, recommended that the government should make. And that's their their job is to, is to recommend such changes. He decided not to do that. Also, I think, you know, some sanctions for breaches. So we've, we saw, I mean, it's, it's faded away now, but there was, you know, a lot of um, uh, concern about Greensill and about um, the jobs that civil servants and ministers take after they leave government. And the body that enforces, it doesn't enforce, the body that advises on whether they should take those jobs has, has no teeth at all. So, you know, there's a question about whether it should be able to enforce its judgments and stop people um, or they be able to impose consequences on people for ignoring its advice um, on those sorts of things. So I think it's about it's about sanctions. It's about potentially giving some of these bodies more of a link to Parliament um, so that it's not just the Prime Minister at the end of the day who gets to decide uh, whether the rules should be followed or not. That's really interesting. Alex, do you think this is a, a general problem or a Boris, Boris Johnson problem? Oh, it's it's both, I suppose. I think it's general because let's not be starry-eyed about the past. Um, you know, uh, ethical or corruption scandals are absolutely nothing new in British politics. Lloyd George selling his 
peerages all the way through to John Major and Sleaze and Cash for Questions and um, the MPs' expenses scandal in the late uh, noughties, bringing us up to date with Cameron and Greensill and uh, Boris Johnson's flat and, and everything else. So it's obviously, you know, it is it is there. I do think there are a couple of things going on at the moment. One is related to Boris Johnson, as uh, Hannah was just saying about his approach to rules and his willingness not to be bound by rules that might have uh, constrained some of his more recent predecessors. But I also think there's something uh, going on in sort of global politics, the, the Trump experience. Uh, there, are, there are lessons that some in politics have drawn from that, that, uh, uh, that if you are confident enough in your assertions that you've done nothing wrong, if you've got a certain proportion of the uh, uh, electorate on your side, then uh, you can get away with an awful lot. So I think there are some sort of broader trends in politics and society at the moment that that make this uh, trickier. I think we happen to have a prime minister who's who's willing to willing to surf some of those trends. But I completely agree with Hannah about strengthening the the oversight. But I think we also have to recognise this is a always going to be uh, a question that we grapple with in politics uh, and government. Tom, how much do you think people care about this? I'm really conscious of the way that um, Keir Starmer, the Labour was arguing again and again before the elections in May, the local elections, that, uh, that we've got another big wave of Tory sleaze and it didn't seem to land at all. I, so I remember my days back uh, on The Sun as The Sun's political editor for, for a fair while. And when these sort of processy stories came up and uh, as fascinating as they were with us about various people breaking the rules or various inquiries into what they were up to, it was always incredibly hard to try and persuade my news editors and editors to get them in the paper for the simple reason is that the general British public, unless they could see a way it related back to them and their lives, were generally not that interested. And I think Boris Johnson taps into an anti-politics mood across the country that's been there for a long while. There there isn't much like and respect for, quite frankly, what all of us do uh, in Westminster. So he calculates, probably electorally quite correctly, that if he defies the rules, no one is going to care. No one is going to care about a, a prime minister breaking the rules or ignoring the rules that they don't like in the first place. And actually, it just reinforces the stereotype of a Westminster bubble or potentially even the Labour Party leadership talking about things that, that real people don't care about. Now, how that ever gets put back together, and I'm not entirely sure, rules are fairly important, but unless the nation respects them as well, then the Prime Minister will carry on breaking them for as long as he thinks he can get away with it. So why was MPs' expenses different? Uh, because, funnily enough, MPs didn't break the rules on their expenses, uh, mm. by and large. Now, there was obviously some criminality, uh, and some MPs spent some time in prison over it, but the vast majority of them were acting within the rules. And I think that was the problem, wasn't it? They were claiming vast amounts of money completely legally uh, for duck uh, ponds and moats and all the other ridiculous things, mini bar fridge contents, free pizza wheels, the lot of it. And it was within the rules. And that's what undermined, uh, the, I think, the consensus and the, the feeling that Westminster was doing it right. And also there was something there that was viscerally obvious to the, the British public. There were MPs lining their own pockets from taxpayers' money, and that did affect taxpayers and, and therefore their own lives. Really interesting. But even though it was within the rules, as you said, it, it caused this kind of uprising of, of public feeling that the rules were wrong and are a real turning point in what people's feelings about Westminster seem to be. I mean, Hannah, Hannah, do you agree with that? Well, first I have to exercise my inner pedant, which is to say that actually the duck house and the moat cleaning were claims that were rejected, but they did get into the public uh, imagination. And uh, it, it was really the fact that MPs thought that potentially they might have been within the rules, given the, where the rules were, which was really the problem. I, I do agree with that. I think there was also something 
about the sort of the personal nature of the expenses scandal, the fact that there were stories which covered, you know, all the political parties and lots of people's local MPs. And they were actually, you know, people tend to think better of their local MP than they do of MPs in general. But for that particular scandal, really, it was quite likely that it would be someone, something which related to your own individual MP. Um, and that, I think, really did have a, have a negative impact on, on, on trust in politics for that reason. Alex, I was writing this week about a slightly wider subject that spins off from this, about the way this country, which is famous for having no written constitution, uh, just having a very flexible set of arrangements, um, is finding those arrangements very much in question. And I was arguing that the system has had its day. What do you make of all this? Well, I think there's there's a strong case for reform. And I think, I mean, just to the discussion that Tom and Hannah were just having, I think a, a lot of the question about whether rules get purchase is uh, the extent to which the opposition or political actors can capitalise on it. So I think in the expenses scandal, David Cameron played it better than Gordon Brown. In, in, in Major Sleaze, Blair played it better than Major did. So in the end, it does come back to politics and electoral politics and that aspect uh, of it. On the constitutional question, I think recent and not so recent experiences, uh, including in the more sort of, you know, uh, the drier world of um, uh, government and accountability and agencies taking the right sorts of decisions. I think there is definitely uh, a confusion and a fudging of accountability and uh, who is responsible for what and how decisions are taken, uh, as well as some of the uh, sort of weaknesses in our uh, ethical oversight that Hannah was pointing out earlier. So I do think there is a case for more clarity, more codification of that sort of administrative side of government. I pause a bit on the sort of broader constitutional codification, um, not because it's necessarily a bad thing, but partly because it will open up such a can of worms that every single sort of issue under the uh, sun will be debated and discussed. And also because it's often a proxy, I think, for particular um, campaigns that people want to push, whether that's electoral reform or ethical standards or uh, you know different different way of doing government or judicial review or any of any of these sort of pseudo constitutional questions. So I think there's uh, there's just a note of caution about not using a kind of constitutional rewrite to either distract from or use as a proxy for um, picking off these issues uh, sort of forensically and, and individually. That's really well put. Tom, perhaps you could just help us wrap this up. Where do you think what you might in, um, in grand terms call these constitutional issues, but you might, as Alex saying, you know, pick off one by one as questions of, of ethics and so on. Where do you think this is going? Is there political heat in it? I think, not really, I think is the honest answer, simply because, you know, we all saw what happened at the local elections after the uh, morass of different uh, uh, scandals, be it on lobbying or wallpaper, or whatever it might be, uh, scandals with a small S, I, I suppose, in the run-up to those elections, and the Conservatives put on seats and their accusers lost seats. So I don't think the Brompton is going to change uh, unless something does happen that does capture the public's attention. Um, so if there is a new MP's expenses style mess on the current rules or someone breaking the rules that really does hit home, and there will be. I mean, there always are scandals in Westminster or something always goes wrong. Someone always tries to uh, get one over on, on the rules. And only then, when there is public pressure, when the media are in full charge, when votes are at stake, only then will government start changing the way they behave or changing the rules and tightening up the rules. Uh, a something must be done moment. Suddenly then things can happen very, very quickly. Until then, 
and it could be some while we're going to have to wait a bit longer. Well, thanks for that. Just out of interest, what are scandals with a big S? Uh, good, good point. I'm going to spend the weekend thinking about that. Yeah. Big S and small S. I, I, I may come back to you with a more precise uh, IFG style definition. Let's just wrap up quickly then with our final section, short section, on uh, coronavirus and the announcement that is scheduled for Monday. And that's when the Prime Minister will tell us, no doubt, flanked once more by Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance, whether the final stage of the lockdown lifting roadmap will take place on June the 21st or will be delayed. Michael Gover said that he'll, he'd bet that it will be. Tom, would you? Uh, I think it will be delayed in some shape or form. The Prime Minister's words on Wednesday were, were very ominous indeed. Uh, we have to wait to see whether we've vaccinated enough people to open up. It was effectively what he was saying. Very, very big suggestion there. That the answer is we haven't just yet. Therefore, maybe a delay of a couple of weeks or maybe some sort of hybrid small opening up while uh, much of the status quo uh, remains. What was noticeable is he dropped his mantra of there is nothing today to suggest we should delay. That to me told me that a delay is now of some shape or form in some hybrid fashion uh, almost nailed on. Yeah, and he was pretty clear on it without actually saying that. He was wearing a nice hard hat saying Scottish Power Renewables, standing in front of wind farm, solar panel, all kinds of messages going on. But the one that in fact did come through was his uh, uh, strong warning that things might change. Alex, I mean, you wrote us a fairly critical paper on the government's decisions and the way it made decisions during previous lockdowns. What do you think now? I think they've have been more effective in their decision making over the last uh, four, five, six months. And I think there's been more of a sense of order, more discipline around the government, uh, less sort of confusing uh, briefing. I think that's partly because of some of the personalities who might be involved. I think that's partly because uh, you know, the, the government knows, knows uh, more about the virus, more about uh, how people uh, respond and so is more experienced. But what's striking to me in this context is uh, pretty much everything over the last few months has been about opening up and exit from the lockdown. We are potentially just about to tip into a period where we're either delaying that exit or even, this is very little discussed, but if case numbers are going up and the link with hospitalizations is not yet broken, there may come a moment when the scientists start saying, well, we should go backwards uh, and uh, reimpose some of the restrictions that we were all under um, earlier in the year, um, that will be the test, I think, for the government, because steady ordered opening up, you know, a, a pretty, you know, fairly decent tick on, on that. But let's see whether the Prime Minister's instincts that we heard so much about from Dominic Cummings can, uh, can chime with the scientific advice, and he can find a way to, to deal with this next sort of trickier, more balanced phase. We'll see. Interesting. And Hannah, where do you think the backbenchers are on this? Well, I mean, I think... <sighs> That was a big sigh. <laughs> <laughs> I was just reflecting on this week and, you know, it, it's certainly the case that Boris Johnson can't take Parliament for granted. Um, he's got some some pretty savvy uh, uh, big hitters on the backbenches who, who know how to work Parliament. He's also got a, a set of maybe slightly less predictable new MPs who are a bit less sort of indoctrinated in the way that Parliament is is sort of normally operates and, and maybe willing to rebel. But I think, you know, as we've seen thus far in the pandemic, I can't see MPs at the end of the day standing in the way of what the scientists are advising. In the, and, it, and I think the government has done a better job 
of saying that these decisions are, are based on data, possibly a slightly unhelpfully strong emphasis at the same time on dates. It's not quite been data, not dates. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I can't actually see the parliament um, s- stopping this happening, if that's the judgment that, that the government takes. On the other hand, more generally, I do think he's going to have to, to, to think quite carefully about his parliamentary handling for those first two reasons that I gave. All right. Well, we keep an informal IFG scorecard running all the time, and thanks for that contribution to it. We are really sadly going to have to wrap it up there, though the news goes on. So my huge thanks to Alex Thomas, Anna White, and especially to Tom Newton-Dunn. If you enjoy this podcast, then head to IFG Live, our sister podcast channel. We've got a new one out exploring on how to hold a successful COVID inquiry and keep an eye out too for an inside briefing extra with a really brilliant panel on how the world can meet long-term threats of coronavirus. Very important listening before the G7. And you can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Do leave us a review too. Good bad or the full Carbis Bay Hotel five stars. Remember to check out all our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. We've got a great new paper out on taking stock of the government's proposed reforms of the railways, something we're going to be talking about next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. It's going to be a hot weekend, most places. The chance to relax, hit the beach, get an ice cream, get away from it all. Except, of course, if you're in one particular part of Cornwall. Good luck to any listeners down there. See you next week.